This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. We're continuing our series of favorite music interviews from our archive with Jay-Z and Lizzo. First, we have Jay-Z, who's been incredibly successful as a rapper and an entrepreneur. We spoke in 2010 after he published his memoir, Decoded, in which he wrote about growing up in a housing project and watching crack destroy his neighborhood. He sold drugs before finding success in the recording studio and on stage. His book also tells the stories behind 36 of his songs. He holds the record for the most number one albums by a solo artist on the Billboard 200. In 2017, Jay-Z became the first rapper to be inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. His 2009 record with Alicia Keys, Empire State of Mind, became something of a New York anthem. He's also known as Beyonce's husband. Let's start with one of Jay-Z's signature songs, Izzo, H-O-V-A, from his 2001 album, The Blueprint. gentlemen to the eighth wonder of the world the flow of the century oh it's timeless ho thanks for coming out tonight you could have been anywhere in the world but you're here with me i appreciate that uh H to the Izzo, V to the Izzo, for shizzle my nizzle used to dribble down in VA, was hurting them in the home of the turbans, got it dirt cheap for them, plus if they were short with cheese I would work with them, more than we, got rid of that dirt for them, wasn't born hustlers, I was birthing them, H to the Izzo, V to the Izzo, for cheesy my kneesy, keep my arms so breezy, can't leave rap alone, the game needs me, haters want me clap that chrome, it ain't easy, cops wanna knock me, DA wanna buy me in, but somehow I beat them charges like Rocky. H to the Izzo, B to the Izzo. Not guilty, he who does not feel me is not real to me, therefore he doesn't exist. So poof, vamoose, son of a b- H to the Izzo, B to the Izzo. For shizzle, my nizzle used to dribble down in VA. H to the Izzo, B to the Izzo. That's the anthem, get your damn hands up. H to the Izzo. Jay-Z, welcome to Fresh Air. It's great to have you on our show. So um, what were your first rhymes like? Like you got your first boombox when you were nine. Your mother gave it to you, you say, because she thought it would help keep you out of trouble. Um, yeah, um, yeah. just so, you know, if I was focusing on music, you know, I wouldn't be, uh, you know, running the streets all while. So she, she tried to encourage uh, me to pursue my dreams in music early on. And my first rhymes were pretty much, you know, very boastful and you know academic, but they were kind of advanced for a young kid. Like I, I put a um, a piece of one of them, and it was like I'm the king of hip hop, the renewed like the Reebok, the key in the lock with words so provocative. As long as I live, and I look back on that rhyme now, I'm like, man, it's pretty prophetic. So uh, <laughs> you were about nine when you wrote that. Yeah, well, yeah, between nine and eleven, those are my first rhymes. Okay, so provocative is a pretty big word for a kid of that age. You write how you started reading the dictionary, like looking for cool words to use. Did you find that word in the dictionary, or did you already know yeah. it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I found that in the dictionary. I had a sixth grade teacher, uh, Miss Loudon, that was uh, very uh, pivotal to my hunger for uh, wanting to know the English language and, you know, discover these words and you know, it was a tool in, 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 in the music that I, in the poetry that I chose to pursue. Would you describe the Marcy Projects in Bedford-Stuyvesant where you grew up in Brooklyn? 
Yeah, you have uh, these three uh, columns of buildings with uh, four people on each floor, six floors. You know, so you have people to the left of you, right of you, top on top, and uh, on the bottom of you. It's a very uh, intense and stressful situation. Everyone's going through um, different things. And in between all that stress and angst and, you know, having to deal with one another in such close proximity, there's so much love. And there was playing in the Johnny Pump and there was uh, the ice cream man who coming around and there was uh, all these games that we play. And then it would turn suddenly just violent. And uh, there would be shootings at 12 in the afternoon on any given day. So it was just weird mix of emotions. I mean, you know, one day your best friend could be killed. The day before, you could be celebrating him getting a brand new bike. It's just extreme highs and lows. How old were you when crack came to the neighborhood? Um, It was about 85, so I had to be... A little earlier than that. So maybe about 12, 13 years old. And how did that change the projects? Well, I think it, what it changed most was, you know, to have a saying, it takes a village to raise a child. It changed the authority figure because, you know, with crack cocaine, it was done so openly. The people who were addicted to it, the fiends, had very little self-respect for themselves. This it was so highly addictive that they didn't care how they at- obtained it, and they carried that out in front of children who were dealing at the time. So the relationship of that respect of, you know, I have to respect my elders and, you know, Uncle Tyrone's coming. He wasn't really your uncle, but he was the uncle for the neighborhood. And, you know, that, that dynamic shifted, and it had broke forever. And it just changed everything from that point on. And it changed everything for you because you and you write about this in the book and, you know, you've you've rapped about it, too. You ended up being a hustler. You ended up selling crack and helping your mother as a single mother support the family. You describe in the book how when you first started writing rhymes, you had a notebook. But when you were hustling on the street you weren't carrying your notebook with you. And if a rhyme came to you that you wanted to remember, what would you do? You'd go to you'd go to the store. Tell the story how you'd go to the store to... Yeah, what happened was I wrote so much in this book. I would sit at my table for hours and hours to my mother made me go to bed. And it was like this, this obsession with words and with writing. And as I got further away from no, that notebook, you know, as I was on the street and these ideas would come, I would run into the corner store, the bodega, and uh, grab a, like a paper bag or just buy juice, anything just to get a, a paper bag. And then I write the words on the paper bag and stuff these ideas in my pocket until I got back. And then I would transfer them into the notebook. And as I got further and further away from home and from the notebook, I had to memorize these rhymes longer and longer and longer. And like with any exercise, you know, once you train your brain to do that, it becomes a natural occurrence. So, you know, by the time I got to record my first album, which was I was 26, I didn't need pen to paper. My my memory had been trained just to listen to a song, think of the words, and then just lay them to tape. And what about now? Do you write down rhymes when they come to you? or No, I haven't since my first album. And your memory's as good now as it was then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've lost plenty of material. It's not, a, it's not the best way. I wouldn't advise <laughs> it to... 
I wouldn't advise it to anyone. I've lost a couple albums worth of great uh, material. <laughs> well, I thought they were great when I couldn't remember them. You know, to think about how you know when you can't remember a word and it drives you crazy. Like, uh-huh. man, I gotta think about this. You know, it's it's the it's the it's the. So imagine you know uh, forgetting an entire rhyme and, and having to sit there and like what I said I was the the greatest something. <laughs> So what was the turning point in your life that got you out of hustling and into the recording studio? It, it was like events that w- it would happen over the years. You know, I went to uh, a guy named Clark Kent by the name of Clark Kent. I made a couple demos with him, and then I would leave back into the streets. You know, my cousin stopped speaking to me, thought I was wasting my talent, and I was like one foot in and one foot out. I always had in the back of my mind that I would be back in the streets for some reason, and um. I guess I didn't have 100% belief in what I was doing. Then finally I just said, uh, man, uh, I'm just going to give this music a try. I'm going to give it 100% and just forget everything that I'm doing. You know, and here we are. Let's talk about another one of your tracks. I want to play Hard Knock Life, which really surprised me when I first heard it because you sample the song Hard Knock Life from the Broadway show Annie, which um, I thought was a real surprise, <laughs> surprising choice. <laughs> to say the uh, least. For you, yes, to say the least. Yeah. So, so how did you decide to use that? Well, what happened was uh, my sister's name is Andrea Carter, and um, we call her Annie for short. So when um, the TV version of the play, you know, it came on, and it was like there's a story called Annie, I was immediately drawn to it, of course, as my sister's name. Like, what is this about? So, you know, I watched it and I was, you know, I was immediately drawn to that story. And, you know, those words, instead of treated, we get tricked. Instead of kisses, we get kicked. It immediately resonated with me. So, you know, fast forward, I'm on um, the Puff Daddy uh, tour and I'm about to leave stage. And uh, a DJ by the name of Kid Capri plays this uh, this track, no rap on it, just the uh, instrumental. I you know, it stopped me in my tracks. It immediately brought me back to my childhood and that feeling. And I knew right then and there that I had to make that record and that, you know, people would relate to the struggle in it and uh, the aspiration in it as well. So let's hear the song and then we'll talk a little more about it. So this is Hard Knock Life, Ghetto Anthem by Jay-Z. Take the bass line out. Uh-huh. Let it bump though. Uh huh. On the corners bopping to driving some of the hottest cars New Yorkers ever seen. For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard. From the dope spot with the smoke block clinging the murder scene. You know me well from nightmares of a lonely cell. My only hell, but since when y'all niggas know me to fail? Nah, we all my niggas with the rubber grips or shots. And if you with me, mama, rubbing your th- and whatnot. I'm from the school of the hard knocks. We must not let outsiders violate our blocks. And my block, let's stick up the world and split it 50-50 Uh-huh, let's take the dough and stay real jiggy Uh-huh, let's sip the Chris and get pissy-pissy Flow infinitely like the memory of my nigga Biggie Baby, you know it's hell when I come through The life and times of Sean Carter in volume two That's Hard Knock Life, Ghetto Anthem by my guest Jay-Z 
who has a new book called Decoded. So um, you tell a great story in the book about how you got the rights to use that song, to use the, the song from Annie, Hard Knock Life. Would you tell the story? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, we we got the rights already, so it's a bit late. So, because uh, uh, I, I exaggerated a, a touch, you know, in uh, typical when you have to clear a song, you have to send it a, a sampled song. You send it to the original writers, and they give grant you permission, and you uh, pay a fee for that permission. You know, but some writers, their art is for them very important, so it has to be the right sort of attitude and uh, the right take and the emotion on the record has to fit you know what was originally intended so we're having difficulties clearing the sample and uh i wrote a letter about how much it meant to me you know what it meant to me growing up and how um i went to like a broadway play which was an exaggeration i saw it on tv and uh you know, we got the rights. Um, Let me luckily. stop you because in the book you say yeah. <laughs> that you told a big lie. In the book you say that you, yeah. you you made up that you entered an essay contest and in the essay you wrote, wrote about the importance of seeing Annie on Broadway, which you'd never seen on Broadway, in yeah. fact. And, you know, all that it meant to you when you saw it on Broadway. You, you know, I think you said you, like, won the essay contest. and so you, I didn't want you to put the whole thing out there. I was trying to, you know, I could have... <laughs> <laughs> So, how do you, so, so in other words, you 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 lied a little bit in order to get the rights. Yeah, it was it was you know it was a bad lie for a good reason. <laughs> well, it worked out well for everybody. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a question? You might find weird, but since part of your goal in the book is to kind of explain your generation and explain the music <laughs> to people, you know how a lot of hip hop artists, when they're on stage, they kind of like grab their crotch. <laughs> Yeah, I have a great explanation for that. Yeah, like how did that start? Like who started that and why Why is that? Well, a lot of times in hip-hop, like in rock and roll, you'll have bands who tour the world. They get in vans and they tour the world and they do rinky-dink clubs and they get bottles thrown at them and, you know, until they hone their craft, until they become, you know, rock stars. In hip-hop, the music leads first. So you usually you have a hit record and then you throw this person on stage who's never been on stage before. You know, because the music leads. So they don't have any experience on how to perform in front of people, uh, hold the mic, you know, all these different things that you need to know as a performer. So when you get up there, you feel naked. <laughs> right. So when you feel naked was the first thing you do. You cover yourself. So that bravado is an act of I am so nervous right now and I'm scared to death. I'm going to act so tough that I'm going to hide it and I have to grab, you know, my crotch. That's just what happens. I thought it was kind of the opposite. Like, this stuff is so good. <laughs> I'm no, going to show that, off. That's no? what, <laughs> yeah, they want you, that's, that's what we want you to believe. But <laughs> the reality is, and, and no one else will admit to this, maybe they will, is you're on stage in front of, People are getting put on stage in front of 50,000 people with a record that's a radio hit and they've never performed before. It's going to be a disaster nine times out of ten. So do you feel like you were on stage before you prepared for it? Probably not because you did parties before that. You had experience. Exactly. I, I kind of went went through a uh, rock and roll stage. You know, I kind of was doing parties and learning to perform. I, the first show I ever did, I just forgot the words. I stood there and I tried to pass the mic to uh, Damon Dash, who I co-founded Rockefeller with. I gave him the mic like, here. He was like, man, I don't rap. 
I just didn't know what to do. I didn't, was like uh, in shock. So let's let's play let's get another song in here, and let's do sure. ninety nine problems. We'll we'll do the clean version. Ah, oh. <laughs> it's radio, my friend. <laughs> so this is actually based on a story, uh, loosely based on a story that happened to you. Would you explain? Well, it's based on a generational story as well. Um, there's a higher thing. Like there was a time where where there was a lot of activity going on on uh, Turnpike from New York headed south because there was a lot of drugs going back and forth. And so the the um, state troopers at that time just blanketed every single car, anybody that was uh, of color. And it was this term driving while black. And people were getting pulled over for absolutely no reason, you know, other than their color. So I just had to set the scene up. So now we're driving and we're doing, we're actually doing something bad. You know, we're, we're, we're transporting drugs from New York to, you know, you know, down south. And we get pulled over by a state trooper, but we get pulled over for absolutely nothing. We're wrong. The cop is wrong. This conversation ensues. And it's racial undertones. And he says, are you, do you have a gun on you like a lot of you are? You know, just that statement right there. And the conversation between two people are both in the wrong, but are both used to get in their way. So there's this clever banter that goes back and forth uh, between the two. Okay, and we're going to hear the part of the song that deals with the story that you just told. And again, it's the clean version, so a lot of the words are going to sound kind of... um, it's the second verse. The, the, the way yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. And I w- will say that one of the words that isn't clearly said here because it's distorted because it's the clean version is is the word bitch, which in the context of this part of the song means uh, dog because you're talking about canine dogs here. Yeah. Because uh, the canine, and that was my and yeah. that was the writer in me um, being provocative because that's what rap should be as well. You know, at times. That was really directed to all the people who hear buzzwords in rap music. They hear bitch or hoe or something and immediately dismiss everything else that, um, you know, takes place. And everything has to be put in context. And when you put it in context, uh, you realize that I wasn't calling any female beside the female dog uh, a bitch on this song. You know, is that in spite of the opening part that says, if you're having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I've got 99 problems, but the bitch ain't one. Yeah, that was to uh, to lead the uh, listener down the wrong path if you were looking for that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. So here's 99 Problems by my guest Jay-Z. Hit me. Years 94 and my trunk is raw. And my rear view mirror is the mother. Got two choices, y'all. Pull over the car or bounce on the devil, put the pedal to the floor. And I ain't trying to see no highway chase with Jake. Plus, I got a few dollars I could fight the case. So I pull over to the side of the road. I heard, son, do you know why I'm stopping you for? Cause I'm young and I'm black and my hat's real low. Do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know. Am I under arrest or should I get some up? Well, you was doing 55 and the 54. Uh-huh. Lost the registration and step out of the car. You carrying a weapon on you? I know a lot of you are. I ain't stepping out of the door. My paper's legit. Well, do you mind if I look around the car a little bit? Well, my glove compartment is locked, so it's the trunk in the back. And I know my rights, so you gon' need a warrant for that. <laughs> Aren't you sharp to attack? Hit me. 
99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. If you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me. That was 99 Problems by my guest, Jay-Z. Do we have time for the other 98 problems? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, if we can get it in nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> my interview with Jay-Z was recorded in 2010. After a short break, we'll hear my 2019 interview with rapper, singer, and classically trained flute player, Lizzo. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Yeah. We're going to continue our series of interviews with musicians from our archive with Lizzo. Her latest album, Special, was released earlier this year. The first single, About Damn Time, became her second song to hit number one. Lizzo spent years as an under-the-radar musician before rocketing to fame around the time of our 2019 interview. Her song, Truth Hurts, hit number one on the Billboard charts in 2019, about two years after its release. She's been nominated for eight Grammys and won three. Lizzo is a self-described big girl. Her backup dancers are big girls, too. Earlier this year, she hosted the Amazon Prime Video reality TV series called Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girls, in which women competed to be her dancers. When she was in college, Lizzo was studying to become a classical flute player, although hip-hop and pop won out. She's found a place for her flute in her music. Prince was a fan, and she recorded a track for his 2014 album Plectrum Electrum with Third Eye Girl. We spoke in 2019 just after Lizzo released her album, Cause I Love You. We started with this track from that album, Juice. Welcome to Fresh Air. I love your new album. Thank you so much for coming. I want to talk a little bit about the production on your album. It's so good, and there's different producers on different tracks. You're a constant on there, but um, 
you know, even though there's different producers for different tracks, the album has a kind of very coherent sensibility to it. Can you talk a little bit about the production and what your role is when you, when deciding what the sound is going to be on each track? Well, um, as some people may know, I am, you know, classically trained in music theory and music performance. So I have um, kind of an innate ear and actually a, a highly skilled ear when it comes to frequency and harmony and dissonance and melody. And so it, for me, it's this thing that I can feel in my body. I'm almost like a tuning fork where if I hear the beat and I vibrate, at the level that, you know, I'm supposed to, I know that that's what I want to get on. And from being trained, I think it's easier for me to speak a language to producers and I can speak engineer to the engineers. And I think we all just have so much fun nerding out. And I'm so, I'm credited as a producer on a couple of the songs because I was there, you know, and I'm a, and my DNA is in there as well. So, um, you play flute, and I'll just start by saying you've played flute like on TV and on videos, and a lot of people thought like, oh, it's dubbed by somebody else. She can't possibly play like that. She's not a classical person. I don't know why people think that. That's racist. Yes, you have some, <laughs> you have some very funny videos answering that. <laughs> but yeah. um, tell us how you started to play flute. Like this was what, fifth or sixth grade? Did you choose the instrument yeah. or did a teacher say you get to play flute and this other person gets to play trombone? Yeah, they chose. Um, the flute chose me. I remember I was in band in fifth grade, and we were sitting down, and um, there was one girl, her name was Miss Johnson, and she was a flute specialist. But I really think she was, like, just going to college and was trying to get some extra credits. And he was like, Mr. Browden was like, who do you want in your flute class? Who do you want to play flute? And she picked me. And um, I, I don't know why she picked me. I think later on she was like, you know, you just had a good embouchure. I could tell you'd have a good flute embouchure, which is, you know, your mouth. But um, I don't know. And I was, like, grateful because I wanted to play flute. I thought it was the coolest instrument. But, you know, who could have known? All the cool girls play clarinet anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, how long was it until you started bringing flutes, your flute to gigs? <laughs> well, I will say that I was playing the flute in my rock band um, when I first started playing shows. Um, I played the flute and we got I got nominated for Best Alternative Instrument in the Houston Press Awards um, for flute. <laughs> and I would pull that little girl out and just start playing and they would freak out. But I think it was more it made more sense to bring it out in a progressive rock band. I didn't start bringing the flute out in my um, rap career until at least for my solo career, way later. Um, and I think it was like something that I did. So, for instance, my first tape ever, Lizzo Bangers, all of the flute on that album, which there's a lot of flute samples, I replayed because we couldn't clear the flute. So I had to actually replay the flute on that on those songs. So I've been playing flute on my projects forever, but no one knew it was me <laughs> until now. Hmm. So um, how serious were you about a career as a flutist? Flautist? Flautist. I was flout. Um, you know what's crazy? I always said flautist. And then one day someone's like, it's flutist. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I was very, very, very serious. I studied flute. I played it every night. I, I, when I was a senior 
in high school or a junior, I started studying with the um, principal flutist of the Houston Opera. And um, she was also a professor at the University of Houston. So I was studying with Sidney Carlson for years. Um, and she was kind of like priming me to go to U of H. She got me my scholarship to U of H. And then when I was studying with her there, she was setting me up to study at the Paris Conservatory. Wow. And I was going to study flute at the Paris Conservatory. And I was going to really just, you know, wait in line <laughs> for that first chair. Um, I saw a life of concert black and Boston pops and traveling the world. And um, when that didn't pan out for me, I was very depressed. I was very sad. And um, I, I don't really know what happened. I think the pressure of those two worlds kind of got to me because I was waking up every morning at like 6 a.m. for marching band at U of H. And then I would go to the... Um, go to the uh, rehearsal hall and and I would practice in this tiny uh, room for hours. And then at night I would stay up and rap at fashion shows and try to stay up and keep up with all the fraternities and the sororities. And that was really taking a toll on me. And I was like, who are you? You know, at this point you could, you could, you could do it all through high school, but you're in college now. You're about to be who you're going to be forever. And now who is that? So you grew up in Detroit. What music did you grow up with? Um, in Detroit, I grew up with a lot of gospel music. Um, I remember we would listen to Perfecting Praises over and over and over. That was the um, Marvin Winans uh, family album. And they would always come out with family albums. And um, we would just listen to that. Like, it was strictly gospel. I didn't really listen to secular music or, like, radio music. But mind you, I was still very, very young. Um, but it, it shaped who I am today on stage. Like, you get a lot of hallelujah moments from me, and that's from Detroit and growing up in the Kojic Church. Which church? The Church of God in Christ, which is Kojic. So um, when you weren't listening to secular music, was that because of the church? Did your parents not want secular music in the house? Um, I mean, well, you know, it was the devil. So we did. <laughs> I, my parents. So the funny thing is, is, you know, my sister and my brother who are older than me, they remember different things. Like my dad, he really loved Elton John and my mom loved Stevie Wonder. So, you know, we would have those types of things. Um, Hall and Oates, you know, Queen. My dad loved Queen. So like those things would filter in here and there. But for the most part, you know, we tried to listen to gospel music. Music makes people feel things. And it made me feel things in church that I knew that I could I could bring to my music. You know what I'm trying to say? So mm -hmm. like, for instance, there was something about the way that the 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 um What's it called? It's like a revival song or uh, shout music. Shout music is when the drummers are going off and the bass is like, you know, and then at that point, everybody's just running around the church and everyone's shouting like that reaction, that visceral, physical reaction that you see in people that's driven by the music like the pastor talking can make you say amen all day but there's something about that driving music that makes you want to get out of your seat and run and I knew that music had the power to move people physically even emotionally but especially physically so I don't think it's just because we're talking about Jesus because even in those bass lines the bass line's not talking about Jesus the bass line is just running and it takes you to God or it you know what I'm saying it's just a vessel and so I want to use my music as a vessel to get you where you need to go to a positive place. 
Okay, so I'm going to play a, a song that I think really gets you moving. The lyrics are very not spiritual, literally. They're more profane. <laughs> um, and, and I want I want to play boys. Um, <laughs> Girl, what? This transition. <laughs> it's, All right, it, let's go. It, it, it gets this you song, moving. It gets you moving. Song, and in terms of believing in your music, I think this succeeds. Um, yeah, I will say that this song live out of all the other songs, get the people stomping. So if you're ready to stomp, okay. here's boys. <laughs> and, 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 and I know it's, it's quite a segue from what we're talking about, but I see it as connected. So this is Boys, and it was released first as a single, but it's an extra on the what, like expanded version of your new Deluxe. album, Because I Love You. The mm-hmm. deluxe version. <laughs> okay, so here's Lizzo. What you say, boy? You trying to play court like a game boy? Hit my phone, boy. Is your homeboy? Are you alone, boy? Come give me dome, boy. Got a boy with degrees, a boy in the streets. A boy on his knees, he a man in the sheets. Sheesh, it's all Greek to me. Got this boy speaking Spanish. I hit my beer. Baby, I don't need you. I just want to freak you. I heard you a freak, too. What's two plus two? of my 2019 interview with Lizzo after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my 2019 interview with singer and hip-hop artist Lizzo. I know you met Prince when you were living in Minneapolis. And, I was on his album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you did a track on the um, on one of his... Plectrum Electrum. On Plectrum mm-hmm. Electrum with Third Eyed Girl. And... Um, so how did he find you? Because he invited you to perform for him. He asked you then to do a track for Plectrum Electrum. So I know you when you moved to um, Minneapolis after college, after dropping out of college, um, you became a kind of important part of the music scene there. But so how did how did he find you? How did he hear you? Um, okay, so. There was a documentary being made about um, burgeoning musicians and also like, you know, yeah, I think it was just burgeoning musicians actually in Minnesota. And um, it was on one of the like local news stations and it was us, me and um, my best friend and my DJ Sophia Aris's group, um, The Feeling, who won The Voice, and Plectrum Electrum, who is Prince's um, band. And... And I think some other people, too, but I can't remember. And um, <laughs> they did a piece on us. And uh, the day it aired, 
the uh, current, the radio station in Minneapolis called, in, or St. Paul in Minneapolis, they called and said, they hit us up and said, yo, you won't believe this, but Prince just sent us an email asking for y'all's contact. And we were like, what? And mind you, this was maybe two years after I moved to Minneapolis. Um, and I was... I w- couldn't believe it. I was like, well, give them our email. What are you waiting for? And um, the email just simply said, um, I would like for you to come to Paisley Park on Easter Sunday. And um, Easter Sunday, to- wow. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, it was amazing. And um, to work to to work on a song. And we went and it was magical. And from then on, we had a relationship um, with Paisley Park and with him where we would just, he would ask us to come perform for his his parties and we would come and perform. And um, we also had, he, you know, talked about me in interviews. He was like, you know, Lizzo's one to watch. She's up next. When nobody was checking for me, he was checking for, you know, young black girls and young black artists and giving us a voice and gave me my first big check. I mean, I have a, I have a lot of respect and uh um, deep, profound relationship with one of the greatest artists of all time. So that's all I can say about that. Okay, so I want to break here and play another song. And this is from your 2016 EP, Coconut Oil, and the song is Good as Hell. I really love this. And I know a lot of people do. Um, again, I'm going to ask you to talk about, you know, writing it and conceiving the sound. Yeah. Good as Hell was the first time I had written a song that I was like, wow, this song could be on the radio. I never saw myself as like a big artist like that that would have so I was very much indie-minded, you know? And I remember it was one of the first songs I wrote with Ricky Reed. And we were in the studio, and I, he flew me out to L.A., and I was like, oh, okay. I was, like, feeling myself. And we sat down, and he played this piano riff, and he said, how does this make you feel? And I was like, you know how it makes me feel? And I did a little hair flip, and I checked my nails. I was like, it makes me feel like everything going to be okay, you know? It's like it makes me feel good as hell. And he was like, all right. And that was, like, the basis of our relationship. Like, he would literally take words from my mouth and be like, you know you just wrote the lyric right <laughs> and I was like really <laughs> so um this was the beginning of a very beautiful relationship okay let's hear it this is good as hell from Lizzo's EP coconut oil I do my head toss check my nails baby how you feeling good as hell. head toss check my nails baby how you feeling Make it right, so go and let it all hang out tonight. Cause we 
We'll hear more of my 2019 interview with Lizzo after a short break. This is Fresh Air. So, you know, I, I read that when you were in, I guess, middle school, that there was a period when you used to, like, put plastic wrap around your your tummy and around your feet to make them smaller, kind of like girdling them. Can you compare your mindset about yourself physically then to what it is now? <laughs> okay, so I will say this. I would put plastic wrap around my stomach and I would walk and I would try to work out every morning in middle school and I would try to like lose all the fat off my stomach. But the sh- the shoe thing is real because my feet were so wide, I would make my shoes slouch and people would make fun of the fact that my shoes were slouch. Kids will make fun of anything, bro. Kids will find something about you. They would even make fun of the fact that your shirt had, like, nipples on it if it was on the hanger for too long. They'd be like, ah, you got s*** on your shoulders. So kids were so mean that I... It's wild, right? I would go out of my way. I would tape my feet up because I read about it. I read that women in, like, Asia would bind their feet. And, you know, I'm in middle school reading about this. And I was like, I'm going to bind my feet so that my shoes don't slouch over, especially my new ones. And because I cared so much about what people thought because there was such a crazy consequence associated with being a little different. And I think that that consequence now is completely, it's the opposite. You know, now being different makes you stand out. Now being different makes you a star. And I think that I had to embrace those differences to become the the person that I am or, you know what I'm saying, the star that I am, or else I would have just been homogenized like everybody else. I think when you're in middle school and in high school, you want to be like everybody else. You want to amalgamize and you want to be normal so badly, but I just couldn't help being weird. I was so weird that people went out of their way to point it out for me and now I'm so grateful for that. I just want to ask you about one more song, and it's called My Skin. And I want you to talk about the song. My Skin is a song that I wrote, and it was I, I would like to say that this was the beginning of my body-positive songwriting journey. Um, I wrote it because someone asked a question. Someone asked a question. Hold on, Jesus. They asked me, what's my favorite thing about myself? And I told them my personality and they said okay um but physically what's your favorite thing about yourself and I did not have an answer and um for the first time in my life I had to actually think about something that I liked about myself physically and because it was so difficult I was moved to tears um and in that moment I remembered that you know I had just well I just fallen off a cliff because <laughs> I was literally I was rope swinging into the river yeah. and I am just so heavy and the rope I fell off the rope and fell on the ground it was really scary and traumatizing I'll never do anything like that again but I scraped up my skin and I remember my friend was like look what you did to your beautiful skin and I still had the cane and I had the bandages on my legs during this interview and I looked down and I was like oh my god my skin that is my favorite thing about myself and it was in that moment where I realized I damaged my skin um where I saw the value in it and that was the first time I'd ever discovered 
my f- body love. And I just started with my skin and moved on from there. And I wrote this song to celebrate that moment because it literally changed my life. Lizzo, thank you so much for talking with us and thank you for your music. Thank you. My interview with Lizzo was recorded in 2019 after the release of her album, Cause I Love You. Her latest album, Special, was released earlier this year. Yeah. Real world, big girl means world. A crazy position, now your dreams is your mission, huh? Staring in the mirror, realizing wishing work. Now all I wish is for a chance to get my kids aboard. I got a family tree that's worth praising the Lord. Mama looking like the second woo, looking guy. Sister like a soldier, hold it down. Southwest gon' hold it down. Uh, I love you, don't forget it. Your beautiful black masterpiece, boy. They don't make brothers like you. Uh, make it happen with that black girl magic The hat trick off of what we will do I woke up in this I woke up in this In my skin Tomorrow on Fresh Air, as we continue our week-long series of interviews with musicians from our archive, we'll feature songwriter and singer Roseanne Cash. In 1973, when she was 18, her father Johnny Cash gave her a list of 100 essential country songs. I spoke with her in 2009 after she recorded 12 of those songs on her album, The List. I hope you'll join us. Girl, I'm about to have a panic attack. I did the work, it didn't work. I, I, that truth, it hurts. Damn, it hurts. That lovey-dovey was not a fan of it. I'm good with my friends. I don't want a man, girl. I'm in my bed. I'm way too fine to be here alone. On other hand, I know my worth. And now he calling me. Why do I feel like this? What's happening to me? Oh, oh, oh. Am I ready? Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brugger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Henry Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross.